Hi, everybody. Now, if you would, the passage for today is John's prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. It's there in your worship guide, or if you have a Bible, you're welcome to use that. Stand and read it together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight in this moment. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can be seated. So we're spending lots of time in John's prologue because... Chip, um, could you do me a favor and close those back doors for me? Thanks, guys. The trees are waving at me, and that's very distracting. Ah. I might wave back. Thanks, Chip. We've been spending time in John's uh, prologue because John's prologue doesn't just introduce his gospel. It, it, it's actually his, it, it's like an overture. It contains all the themes in his gospel right there at the beginning. It, it's really the key to interpreting it. Thank you, Chip. So we're spending time here. Um, last week, we, excuse me, last week Scott filled in, which was awesome. But the week before that, we asked the question, what does it mean that the Word, Jesus the Word, is God? What does it mean that Jesus is God? 
when we talked about the doctrine of eternal generation. Remember that? That's what we can say it means that the Son is God, that he is eternally generated from the Father. He comes from the Father, uh, like children are generated from their parents, but it's eternal, it's not in time. Uh, and there's no hierarchy there. There's no uh, relationships of authority and submission or higher and lower or anything like that. It's this beautiful relationship of generation and equality and fellowship and oneness and two-ness all at the same time. So that was two Sundays ago. What, what does John mean when he says that the Word was God? So we looked at the divinity of Christ two weeks ago. Today what I want to do is I want to look at the humanity of Christ. I want to consider together what does it mean that this, well, like it says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does it mean that the only begotten Son, the eternal God who is eternally generated from eternal God, what does it mean that he became a human being, that he put on flesh, that he became one of us? Why is that important? What does that mean for us? So that's what I want to focus on today. Uh, if we answer the question, what does it mean that Jesus is God, I mean, the, the formal doctrine is eternal generation. If we ask the question, what does it mean that, that God became human in Christ in Jesus, the formal doctrine, does anybody know the word? What does it mean? That, what is the formal vocabulary word for God became human? Anybody know? Incarnation, that's it. So today, very good, Bradley. Today we're going to consider together the doctrine of the Incarnation. That's what John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what that's all about. So, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now, let me just disclaimer here. We'll see, hopefully you'll see by the end of this, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the fact, the truth, the claim that God became human in Jesus Christ, it is absolutely, unquestionably central to Christianity. We could say it's at the foundation, we could say it's at the spoke of the wheel, however you want to do it. it, is, there, is there is no Christianity without Incarnation. They, they, it's essential. So, if I, I was tempted, and I have been tempted, and I will be tempted in this time, to stand up here and tell you all the reasons why the Incarnation is important from Scripture. How the Incarnation, because God became a human, um, uh, we, we can understand what God's saying to us. Or how, because God became a human, we can identify with Him, and, and He uh, went to the cross as our substitute. Or because God became a human, He rules over us as a, as a human king. We could go on and on and on, and I could be here all afternoon, forever and ever. But we don't. It's beautiful outside, and we have moms to take to lunch. So 
I'm not going to get everything about the incarnation today. I want to show you what does John, the evangelist, the, the gospel writer, what is he trying to tell us about the incarnation here in this text? So that's what we're going for. What do we need to know about the incarnation from John, and why is it so important that we see his perspective on the incarnation? That's what we're going for today. Okay? So let's do it this way. Let's start with John's actual words. Verse 14. That's going to be our guide. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the incarnation? What happened at the incarnation? What is it all about? John gives us the answer. The Word. Think about everything we have learned so far about what it means that Jesus is the Word. He's God's self-expression. He's from God. He is God. He's beside God. He's fully divine. Everything about him that we have learned. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. In fact, the Word itself, incarnation, that's what it means. Uh, it comes from the Latin, in, which means into, and carno, which means like flesh, like, like, like your body, or like meat, which is like, an, like when you go to the Mexican restaurant and you order carnitas, you're going to think twice about it now. Yeah. You're ordering little flesh. Uh, so that's in flesh, into flesh, incarnation, the word became flesh. Now, this is an idea that John presents, I think, as clearly as anyone could ever say it. Three words, straight to the point. The word, four words. The word, it's two, became flesh. Very straightforward. However, the concept is so big in fact, the concept is eternal, because the Word Himself is eternal. That we can't fully wrap our minds around it. We can barely wrap our minds around one another in our relationships. That's the flesh part. But the Word becoming flesh, we, we can't get there through contemplation. And for that reason, from the days of the early church, even from the days that John was writing this, even from the days that John was writing this and his three little letters that exist in the back of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, few Christians in the church have struggled to understand incarnation, struggled to understand the Word became flesh. And in that struggle, throughout the generations, even until today, we Christians have taken this eternal grand big idea and we've tried to pocket-size it. We've tried to explain it away in finite terms. And each time we do that, we, we move just a little bit off target. And if you aim a little bit off target, and the target is into infinity, you end up infinity off target, right? Let's put it this way. Early on in the first century, there was a group of Christians who started teaching, they said, yeah, 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 the Word became flesh, John, we get it, 
Um, but what that really means is, uh, we, you know, we've been studying Greek philosophy, and we know that the spiritual world is is pure and holy and good, and the physical world is that's derivative, that's secondary, it's not as pure, it's not holy, it's vulgar. Spiritual things are good, physical things are vulgar and common. So the pure Word of God could never actually fully become flesh. What happened is that the Word merely appeared to be human. And this teaching was known as docetism. And early on there was this movement called docetism or docetic Christianity. And this was while the Apostle John was alive. And People would read, when the Word became flesh, they would hear John's teachings, the teachings of the apostles, and they would sit in church and hear all about how God himself became a human being, and then they would leave and they go, yeah, but that's just sort of a metaphor, right? And that was, became a huge problem in the church. So by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, and John's writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John at the end of his life, these letters to the church, listen to these verses. This is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. Same guy that wrote, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he writes this to the church. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. And this is how you can tell uh, and how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus, does not acknowledge Jesus, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. John writes to the early church and he's saying, okay, there's lots of people around you who are claiming to have words from God, people are claiming to talk, you know, have contact with the spiritual world. How do we know who's a real prophet, who's not, who's a good preacher, who's not? Let me give you a little witness test. Somebody comes to your church, they start teaching you things. If they affirm that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then you can trust them. But if they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they have the spirit of the Antichrist. Pretty strong language, John. Listen to this. This is from 2 John, his second letter to the church. This is 2 John, verse 7. He says, uh, well, starting in verse 6, he says, As you have heard from the beginning, uh, God's command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. <laughs> so just so you know here, John is teaching us that the eternal word became flesh. And then in another part of the New Testament, he teaches us that if a pastor or a teacher or somebody does not actually affirm the fullness of that, the full humanity of Jesus, and that person is not only not Christian, they are anti-Christ. Can you, can you think of any stronger language than that? No. Here's the point. The humanity of Jesus, 
Let me say it a different way. The humanity of God in Jesus is, again, absolutely essential to Christian faith and practice. It's so essential to Christian faith and practice that to deny it, or even to diminish it to the point of ignoring it, is anti-Christ and non-Christian. That should lead us to look back at the history of the church and see that from day one, there were Christians who diminished or who denied the humanity of the Son of God. And so maybe we should ask ourselves, how seriously do we take God's humanity in Jesus? I remember when I was in seminary, I enjoyed learning about early heresies in church history. I thought it was kind of fun. Mostly because I'm a history nerd, but also because there was a little part of me that liked to hear about what these early heretics believed, and I liked to sit there and just think about how stupid they were. Oh, these guys are such idiots. Why would they ever think that? But you know, these heresies arose in the early church, and they never actually went away. The heresy of docetism, that the Son of God merely appeared or appears to be human. It's alive and well today. And you know, we struggle with it. Have you ever heard somebody talk about Jesus when they talk about him in Galilee and in Judea and they say, oh, during his incarnation he did this, but now, you know, he's, he's you know, back to the, as if the incarnation is over. That's docetism. Even today, Jesus is still a human being. Did you know that? He never unfleshed. Wherever he is, he, he continues to fill the heavens. He's fully God. But somewhere, somewhere in reality, I, I don't know how this works metaphysically. I, I don't know. But somewhere sits a human being who is the absolute king of the universe. Did you know that? There's other ways that we buy into docetism. We, even like the early Greeks, sometimes we today, we act like spiritual reality is like, is like the ultimate. And physical stuff, that's not really important. If you don't believe me, um, think about this. Let me put it, how do I say this in a gracious way? Um, I grew up, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a tradition that I grew up in, I won't, I won't knock her off, just, you know. I grew up in a, in a, in a church tradition where it was totally normal uh, to, for people to be, to overeat, uh, to be totally comfortable with being physically unhealthy, uh, for church officers to smoke cigarettes, um, for us to have church potlucks with tons of junk food. Um, that, that was totally fine. Nobody paid any attention to that. Because Christianity is a spiritual thing. That's a kind of docetism. 
Christianity is not just a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing. You see what I'm getting at here? So this is important. But let's get back to let's get back to uh, how important incarnation is. We we started confessing the Nicene Creed uh, a few months ago when we started the Gospel of John. We went from the Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed. And one of the reasons our session decided to do that is because the Nicene Creed gives us more details about who Jesus is as the God-human in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. It, it gives us more uh, it gives us more of the great tradition. And we wanted to uh, our church to spend time meditating on these things because it's so easy for us to drift and start recreating Jesus recreating the Son of God in our own image or in our own spiritual ideal. So listen to the words of the Nicene Creed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. Eternal generation. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. There's three stages there. He came down. He humbled himself. He became incarnate. He put on flesh. And just so we get it, he was made human. We need to learn to sit with that. Folks, it's a true statement to say that the God that we worship is a human being. Because it's Jesus. Kids, did you know that the Jesus that we talk about in church, the Jesus who loves you, Jesus we sing about, did you know he was a human being? He is a human being, just like you and me. He has hands feet and a face, physical body, human. Did you know that? Okay, let's move on. After the Nicene Creed came out in the 4th century, everybody felt like we have squashed docetism. We have we've nailed it. And then all around the, the, the world, uh, the, the, the Christianized world at the time, these other little Christological heresies started popping up. Uh, all these, because it's so hard for us to grasp the full humanity and the full, full divinity of Jesus at the same time. Remember, we try to pocket size it. So these other little teachings popped up. One was called Nestorianism. And that's the idea that Jesus, he is, yes, he's fully human, and God is in there, but he's more like a, like a human, like a really good, spiritually enhanced human, because God came to live inside of him. So just like you and me have God living inside of us, he had God living inside of him, uh, and then he was spiritually. So fully God, fully human, uh, but it was he's more of a, that was historianism. Uh, another heresy that popped up was called Eutychianism. This was put out by a guy named Eutychus, and the idea was that, that 
okay, fully God and fully human, there's a, there's a God nature, there's a human nature, but they come together in Jesus, and the two natures mix together, and what we end up with is this third, like, like superhuman type person. That was called Eutychianism. And then there was another group that said, no, that's heresy, that's vulgar, that, that, then he's neither human or he's neither God. That's, this is simple. Guys, this is simple. What happened is God himself came on and put on a human body. So Jesus is human on the outside, but God on the inside. And that was called Apollinarianism. And the church got together and they looked at these three ideas. Historianism. He's just an inspired human being. Eutychianism. That he's a God-human hybrid. Or Apollinarianism. That he's God with a human suit on. The church got together at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and, excuse me, 381. And they got together and they considered these things. They prayed. They sought the Holy Spirit. And all together with one voice they said, No. Holy God. And they put out this statement. It's called the Chalcedonian Definition. This was adopted by the whole uh, church, with a few exceptions, which we could talk about later. But even our church, the Presbyterian Church in America, we, we recognize this. this is, so this was meant to clarify the Nicene Creed. Let me read this to you. What does that mean to the church, to the people of God, that Jesus is fully God and fully human? Well, it means this. You ready? Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all unite in the teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same one is perfect in deity. The same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true man, comprising of a rational soul and body. He's the same essence as the Father according to his deity. The same one is of the same essence with us according to his humanity, like us in all things except sin. He was begotten before the ages of the Father according to his deity, but in these last days for us and for our salvation, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God according to his humanity. He is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurs together in one person, in subsistence. He is not separated or divided into two persons, but he is one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Logos, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning, and Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and the council of the fathers handed down the faith to us. Let me summarize that. What the church said, following the Holy Spirit, following Jesus' own teachings, the teachings of Scripture, is this. God, nature, human nature, Come together, two natures, one person. One plus one equals one. That's the idea. Now, does this work according to our Western, rational, mathematical 
metaphysically adverse brains? No. But it doesn't have to. It's bigger than us. Does that make sense? Let me tell you why all of this is important. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. All of this is important because this isn't just like academic theologizing. This isn't sitting around and speculating about God. The greatest thing that we could ever do in life is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. And because He is so different than us, so far away from us, we can never get to know Him by our own efforts. And then because of sin, because we cut, cut ourselves off from Him by rebellion, we, we, can, we never had a chance. So God Himself became one of us and lived among us, and even now is among us by His Spirit so that we could know Him. So folks, let's get to know Him. Let's get to know who Jesus is. you see why this is important? Let me put it this way. Back to these heresies. We can look at the early church like I did in seminary and we can laugh at them. Think they're stupid. But they're us. Folks, the way that we take our faith and our Christianity very often shows that we don't know Jesus like we should at all. Like the Nestorians who thought that he was just some sort of God-enhanced human being. We do that. Throughout the church, in our time, and maybe not here in this particular body, but definitely in the church in Portland, how many Christians are there that look at Jesus and they just say, you know what, the, the, real, the real important thing is that, you know, all this theology, we just, that's kind of divisive. We just need to, what's really important is his teachings. And don't get me wrong, his teachings are so important. But at the end of the day, he's just a, he's just a God-filled teacher, so we just need to listen to that life well when we do that. We open our Bibles and we look to Jesus and we say, well, what is Jesus telling me to do today? Instead of, how is Jesus saving me today? And then empowering me to go and do it. You see the difference? His God, humanity together, confessing the truth that he is fully God and fully human affects the way that we approach him and know him. The idea of the Eutychian idea, that he's a God-human hybrid. Our tradition, conservative evangelical, or conservative uh, uh, evangelical Christianity that comes from the fundamentalist side of the fundamentalist modernist controversy a hundred years ago, we struggle with this. We read Jesus in the New Testament, and we think of him as some kind of superman. Oh, he's not like us. He, he's a superhuman. He's walking on water and turning wine, uh, turning water into wine, not because he's leaning on the Holy Spirit, not because he is in communion with the Father, not because 
uh, he's giving signs to show uh, that he is the Messiah. No, because he can just do whatever he wants. Look at him. He is walking around. He is kicking rear and taking names. He's got big muscles. He's a carpenter. He's a man's man. He's a great leader. Look at him. He is a super leader. We need to be, oh, oh man, if I could only be as... When I was a kid, I had a t-shirt that was meant to look like the Gold Gym t-shirts. Remember those? It said Gold Gym. It said Lord's Gym. And it had a picture of a crown of thorns wearing bloody, muscular, bodybuilding Jesus bench-pressing the cross. No. He is not a superman. He is not some MMA fighting, pro wrestler, manly. No. He's Middle Eastern, Jewish, blue collar. Not in a blue collar comedy tour kind of way, but in a wage, day wage laborer kind of way under Roman oppression. He was yelled at, beat at, and spit at during his work. He built things for the empire because he was forced to. Maybe something like sharecropping. He was meek and mild. He was lowly. He had to take care of his mom when his dad died. Fully human. He had a culture. He spoke Aramaic. He had to learn how to read Hebrew. The very language that he himself, as God who fills the heavens, inspired the scriptures in. He had to learn it. This is our Christ. This is our Jesus. And this, the, the Apollinarian idea that he is just God in a human suit, we fall for that too. We do this thing where we just use the name Jesus as the default name for all things God. Forget Father, Son, and Spirit. We just everything is just Jesus. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to slam anybody's honest expression of piety or hope in the Lord. But there comes a time when we need to move, like like, like the author of Hebrews says, from milk to meat. We need to grow up in our faith. And learn that we have Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son became a human being and at a point in time took a name of Jesus, which he bears today. So when you pray, who are you talking to? We can pray to all three. It's one God. When we pray to the Father, we pray through the Son by the power of the Spirit. But learn his name. Now, again, why is all of this important? Why can't we just, why can't Jesus just be whoever Jesus is to me and you just leave me alone about it? Because he's a person. You get to know him, to respect him, to learn from him, to receive him. Just like we learn each other, we get to know each other. And Let's not forget that when we do that, what's actually happening is what John says in the last part of this verse. The Word became flesh and made us ruling among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Folks, did you know that when you look to Jesus, when you contemplate who he is based on what scriptures say, based on how the Holy Spirit has guided the church in the great tradition, illuminating the scriptures, when we spend time contemplating Christ like this, did you know that what you are actually doing is apprehending the untouchable glory of God? And that's the gospel. Back in the old days, in the Old Testament, people used to say, oh, somebody sees God, they're going to die. That's true. You can't see God. And if you could, they'll kill you. Back in the old days, when the, when the, when the glory of God filled the tabernacle or filled the temple, it was shrouded by a dark cloud. In case anybody looked at it, it would have killed them. Remember when the, the cloud came down on the tabernacle after Moses had completed it? Moses had to get out of there. Nobody could go in. Even though God was with the people, nobody could get close. His glory was untouchable. It was a consuming fire. At Sinai, they had to... Animals couldn't even get on the mountain. They would die. God was, because he is, big and scary and unapproachable. But then he became a human being. Still is. So that, not only we could be reconciled to him in a legal, forensic sense, which is awesome, so that we could actually take a hold of his glory. Did you know that what it means to be a Christian is to walk right into the middle of that cloud and take a seat? If we could take a time machine back to you know, the Old Testament temple and the Holy of Holies where the priest could only go once a year and had to do everything right in case he messed up and God killed him because it was such a holy place. Because we know Jesus, the human being, because we have listened to his teaching, because we have followed him, because we have given our lives to him, because we have made friends with him, we could walk right into the middle of that room. That's incredible. Lots of people, lots of Christians, maybe some of you, don't really understand don't really believe that you could know God, like really know Him, or that you could be His friend. And he became a human so that you could. You can stare right into His glory. You can walk right in. You can lay a hold of it. Because He's a human being. He will be forever. And one day when we die and we join him in a resurrection and we show up at his front door and God comes out to greet us, he's coming out to greet us as a human being. I don't know about you, but I'm falling on my face. Probably all will. But I'm convinced he's going to come and put his hands on you know what we're going to feel? The hands of a friend. This is real. 
something we can actually put our real life hope in. Let's pray.